The Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space Podcast. Created from an atomic fireball hurled from outer space. The Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space Podcast. Threatens man's very existence on Earth. Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space Podcast. Battles Godzilla, Mothra, and Rodan for mastery of the world. Men quake before the terror of their unleashed fury. All new, all never to be forgotten. A new high in visions from Monsterland. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Underwater Kaiju. From outer space, bringing you your visions from Australia. Today is me, Jerry, joined by Derek. Hello there, Jerry. It's been a while, man. It's been a little bit. Uh, also joining us, of course, is Mr. Venom. Greetings and salutations, communist kaiju fans. Um, sure. <laughs> we also have Don with us, as always. Greyhonk in Korean, everyone. Uh, an actual dumb thought I had today was, do North Korean and South Korean speak the exact same type of Korean? I think the they th- do. I'm pretty the sure th- they do, but... The thought I had was I was listening to the Team America's I Am So Rony song during watching this movie. I Am So Rony. <laughs> so, in case y'all haven't... Figured it out. Tonight we are talking about the 1970s kaiju movie from North Korea that actually came out in 1985. It just <laughs> looks like it's from the 1970s. And that is Polgasari. This is a film that... Uh, the history behind it is actually more interesting than the movie. But uh, it's actually... I thought it was a pretty decent um, movie. Yeah, that's kind of a... That's a push. <laughs> that's a push what that it's a decent movie or that the history behind it is more no, I actually I, I like the movie a lot I, I take a lot of the backstory out of it when watching and I have as I have more fun with it than I really it, the, it's not exactly a clear cut example of the backstory being better let's just say that Mm, well, hi, we'll we'll get into that. Uh, should we should we review the movie first, or should we talk about the backstory? Maybe we should get the movie out of the way first. Uh, no backstory. Um, yeah, backstory. I think it's backstory. Let's let's give uh, people a little bit of a background before we dive into this, because I think you do need it to understand how the film was made. You don't necessarily need it to understand to enjoy the film, but as an understanding of how the film came to be, I think it's almost necessary. Mm-hmm. Fair I enough. Agree. Okay, so at this point in the world, Kim Jong-il is not supreme leader. His dad is supreme leader of North Korea. Um, but Kim Jong-il has grown up loving movies. He he even has an underground uh, movie deal going on where he's getting tons of movies from around the world that 
technically no one in North Korea is supposed to have, but rules don't apply to him. So he's getting all these movies, and he's watching Godzilla and stuff like that. And um, the and so he's watching movies, and he's just like, man, these movies are great, and North Korea movie sucks. I've got to change this. So when you're going to do something like that, well, you sometimes if, if everyone in North Korea is fucking up and not making good movies, you got to outsource. So you go to the, the, the closest place you can outsource to, and it turns out to be South Korea. There you have famous actress Choi Yuni. Uh, Don, did I say that right? Choi Yuni? Uh, there should be a space, Choi Yoon-hee. Okay. Choi Yoon-hee, uh, who is a famous, famous, famous actress from South Korea. And um, he basically, at this point in time, she has left her second husband. She is just teaching and raising her children. Uh, she's, of course, teaching acting. And she gets an offer to direct a movie in Hong Kong. She takes it, but as soon as she gets to Hong Kong, she realizes shit ain't right. But before she can do anything about it, she's getting a bag over her head by North Korean people and is brought to North Korea. She has been kidnapped, and basically, she actually gets treated pretty well, but being treated pretty well in North Korea is still extremely scary, considering this is a country that if you just happen to call like the supreme leader or someone the supreme leader's family um a hunk of cheese you can get put to death or worse be put in one of their work camps because they actually have two different types of camps there's a rehab camp and a work camp and the work camps are fucking awful they are worse than death so from there we move on to Choi's second husband Now, he is a famous director from South Korea also, and uh, his name is, god damn it, where did I have his name at? Shin Sung-ook? Yes, Shin Sung-ook. He is a famous director in South Korea, but by this time in his life, he's kind of burned out. Everything he did that was, like, innovative uh, has just become common practice now. And a lot of people in South Korea are blaming him for his, his ex-wife's uh, being missing. He doesn't really bother with it, but he's not really getting work. Then he gets an offer to direct a film in Hong Kong. He shows up, and he gets a bag over his head. He's met, met with North Korean thugs, and he's taken to North Korea. Unlike Choi, though, he pretty much... Uh, immediately tries to escape and gets put into a rehab uh place so he tries to uh he tried to escape at least one other time it failed also he got an extended stay but eventually he did get to come out and get to start hanging out with kim jong-il and while doing that him and kim jong-il would watch north korean movies and and kim would actually let uh uk you know, criticize the North Korea filmmaking so that Kim Jong-il could learn how to make it better. Because Kim Jong-il, he had a plan. So, eventually, uh, Uk actually does convince Kim Jong-il to let him meet his former wife again. And reportedly, it was a very awkward meeting and only got broken up when Kim Jong-il laughed really loud. (laughs) Which is awkward. So... From there, 
these two actually start working in movies. You've got Ook directing, Choi acting, and they make a number of films. Um, but the last film they made was Polgasari, which reportedly Kim Jong-il had watched 1984's Return of Godzilla and was like, bitch, I want to make a kaiju film. We've got to do this. So, depending on who you ask, and and this is the common accepted story, because I have seen some other people saying it wasn't true, but I think this is true. Uh, There was supposed... They basically reached out to Toho and was like, hey, help us make a a movie in Hong Kong. Now, I, I don't know if Toho knew it was North Korea. I'm assuming they did it under a different disguise. Uh, but people from Toho said, yeah, sure. They sent a bunch of special effects people and they sent us the man who would play Godzilla for the Heisei series. He played Gigan, and that man is who? Doninelli, inform us because I don't want to say his name. Ken Pajaro Satsuma. There you go. So they all head to Hong Kong only to find out, oh shit, they were tricked. Now they're all in North Korea. But they actually uh, get to make the film and go home. Unfortunately for Ook and Choi, they do not. But Ook's got an idea. He is like, hey, we're cool enough with Kim Jong-il now. Let's get him to let us go promote the movie. So they get to fly around the world to promote the movie. Now, I've read two different locations where they escaped. One was in France, and one was uh, in Austria. I have no idea which one is true, but regardless of where the location was, here's what went down. They had North Korean bodyguards, but they were able to slip away from them, get in a taxi, and ride out. Now, of course, the North Korean bodyguards, they jumped in a fucking taxi also and followed them. But, thankfully, we have stoplights, and a red light ended up catching the North Korean thug taxi and gave uh Ukin Choi a a surprising lead on their exit so they end up getting very close to the american um uh shit what's the word for the build embassy. embassy thank you don uh they in- so but they get stuck in traffic so they decide fuck it they get out they run for the life they make it into the american embassy they tell them what's up and America says, we got you, we'll take care of this. And with that, they had escaped North Korea. So, there are more intricate details. There are, like, personal stories you can go into from when they were in there that are pretty crazy. I just wanted to give an overview of what, like, kind of went down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, if, the, if the listeners want to actually read about this, there's actually... A book written by Paul Fisher about the whole experience called a Kim Jong-il production, the incredible true story of North Korea and its most audacious kidnapping in history. Uh, I recommend that book. You could get a, there's a few different versions. You could get it pretty cheap if you want to read about the actual story. Yeah, I want to pick that up because that's crazy. Also, um, Cho put out a book of her life story, so you can check that out. And uh, there's tons of videos on YouTube that will kind of go over everything. And, and some of them go into a lot of detail. That Like, some of these videos are, like, 45 minutes long. So, 
there are tons of stuff. But with that, we're going to get into Pulgasari. Um, so, first of all, what did we love about this movie? Don, what did you love about this movie? Okay, so like I mentioned earlier, I'm taking away all of the political backstory from this one. I'm going to say a, one of the things I enjoyed the most was I actually like the scope and the scale of the film. I I think it's a lot bigger and a lot grander than what you would have expected in this kind of a movie. The stunt work is really, really impressive. There's a lot of... It's, I mean, you know, we'll get into it a little bit later, but... It, the mixture between like a feudal samurai like sword hand to hand combat kind of a movie with a kaiju film actually has a lot of both a lot of scenes featuring both and i think they're really impressive for what they were able to pull off yeah i have to wonder if king jong il was a big fan of the dajimin trilogy I gotta wonder <laughs> Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. It's very similar to Donnajin, especially the first movie, this movie. Exactly. So, Derek, what did you love about this movie? Uh, I get it back on the... I actually like, uh, like Don said, the scope of it and everything. I, I do like that. But another thing I also kind of liked is, uh, like, uh, the swordsman. I kind of... Because I was reading a little bit of history, and I knew that uh, King John Il was actually a big fan of Shaw Brothers epics, and uh, you could see he was trying to go with that, with like how the costumes were designed and stuff. He was trying to make this a very like Shaw Brothers eccentric piece, uh, and you know, you could just see there's explosions everywhere. It's fucking great in that yeah. aspect of the movie. It's really cool in that aspect, and. I, I dig that aspect about this film a lot. Those swords were big. That sword that he was going to use to cut off dude's head, like, the sheath for that thing was, like, insanely big. Yeah. You could have used that as a surfboard. <laughs> uh, Venom, what did you love about the film? Ooh, very little. Very little. Um, Ooh, shit. Let's see. It's uh, Youngery Part 2. Uh, uh, <laughs> um... <laughs> Let me think. I, I mean, for whatever it's worth, I liked that it wasn't like a kaiju that it existed. Or how can I put this? Wait a minute. I'm, I'm setting it up wrong. I liked the fact that the kaiju wasn't just an epic creature that was woken up, you know, by man's interference. That it was kind of, I mean, it's it's almost, this story is reminiscent of the Gollum story a little bit. Yep. In the, in the sense that Paul Gasari is kind of like a revenge monster. You know, he was brought to life by this blacksmith who was wronged. And, you know, the blacksmith spirit, it kind of, you know, dwells within Paul Gasari. And he basically just becomes a creature of revenge. So that I thought was pretty original for the kaiju world. And, yeah, one of the very few things I'm really going to be able to uh, say as a, an aspect of the movie that I loved. All righty then. Uh, as for me, I love the irony of a movie about a government treating their people so bad that they have a rebellion um, to take it over. And it happens in a country where that's like the main fucking thing of the world. Uh, that is absolutely hilarious to me. And I was actually reading like Kim Jong-il was like, oh yeah, the movie represents how people who hoard money are 
bad, like the Westerners. Us communists with our spreading of money equally, quote-unquote, uh, in a country that has a tax specifically on the economy that just pays for their parties. Uh, it's It's... For the betterment of the Communist Party, but it's really just paying for the family's lavish part, the 17th party they've had this week. Um, that irony is absolutely hilarious to me, and the cognitive dissonance of Kim Jong-il to still find a way to swing that in his favor is great for me. It made me enjoy this movie so much more. It almost ended up playing like a... It's a satire of a country, but it's made by the country it's satiring. It's it's very interesting. I, I really, really dug that. But I also really dug, like they said, the Rebellion stuff. I actually kind of really en enjoyed that a lot. Um, I love stuff like that. Um seeing everyone gathered around and that like certain people had yellow just made me think of like the yellow turban rebellion from like the romance of the three kingdom stuff. Uh, it was really good. So with that said, let's get into the juicy thing. What did you not like about this movie? What did you hate? Venom, we're letting you go first. Cause you were very happy about, uh, not liking this movie. It seems uh, how much time you got. Cause my, my short answer is going to be everything else. I really didn't like this film very much. Um, the story wasn't bad. I, I think the biggest issue with this for me was in the filmmaking. Um, obviously, you know, it's South Korea, or excuse me, it's North Korea, so maybe they don't have um, the advancement in filmmaking that South Korea does. But yeah, I mean, you mentioned it earlier in the intro. For a 1985 movie, this thing looks like it's late 70s, or uh, excuse me, late 60s, early 70s. I mean, yeah, I've seen, you know, 60s martial arts trash movies that are just better put together than this the fight scenes are awful these are some of the worst large battle scenes i've ever seen on film to the point where if you look carefully people are just standing around swinging their swords at air just to kind of look like they're being busy um but but i'm gonna i'm gonna narrow it down to my biggest complaint of the whole thing and that's the sound design the sound engineer on this movie i i don't I don't often wish death on people, but if Kim Jong-il shot this guy in an alley, I wouldn't cry. This sound engineering for this movie is fucking awful. The entire movie is ADR'd, first of all. So they couldn't even afford a fucking microphone while they were shooting the movie. The entire movie is ADR. Maybe they're just doing it the Italian way. Maybe Kim Jong-il really likes Dario Argento. Well, then he picked up nothing from Argento films. <laughs> in the, I mean, granted, King Jong-il, I don't know how much he had to do with the actual making. Um, so oh, he's paid for the whole movie. He paid for I the mean, whole movie, yes, but he, apparently he gave he gave uh, Ook, like, just complete creative freedom. was just like, hey, go do it, because if you do something you're not supposed to do, I'm just going to kill you. So... That's what I mean. Like Kim Jong Il wasn't on set giving notes every day, so I'm not actually. Gonna give him... He probably was sitting there with like his hands <laughs> under his chin, just smiling like a little fucking schoolgirl. Like, yeah, oh my yeah. god, they're making a movie. Yeah, there actually is images of him on the set sitting in a chair, actually, of this movie. Oh, Jesus. Oh God, he's Trump then, he's doing stupid shit when there's more important stuff to be going on. Anyway, that's another conversation. Uh, point is, sound engineer. All the audio is ADR. 
all the voices sound like they were recorded in a fucking studio. Even though 80% of this movie takes place outdoors, there's no ambient audio throughout any of this. You don't hear birds. You don't hear insects. You don't hear the wind. There Maybe is, you know, that's because all of that stuff, Kim Jong-il said, hey, crickets, birds, wind, you make a sound, you're going to a work camp. And so they just all were quiet. <laughs> I mean, hey, make all the jokes you want. It doesn't make it a better movie. It's fucking... I, I, and I am a sound engineer. I, I know I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. So this movie just... It, it hurts my ears to listen to this film. The, the mix is awful. The sound effects, the, the swords clanging together makes no fucking sense at all. Uh, the, the death sound effects, like people screaming. It's like you'll hear screaming, but you won't see anyone screaming. Audio out of sync. Just the music too loud at times, not loud enough at others. Just overall some of the worst sound engineering I've ever heard. And I'm sorry, gentlemen, for those who disagree with me. In 22 episodes, this is the worst movie you've made me watch yet. I, I liked very, very Ooh. little about this film. Heat, heat, heat. Uh, Derek, what about you? What did you not like about this? Uh, mine's kind of like a sound thing also. I wasn't really a big fan of the score. It was kind of jarring in some spots. Uh... Like, like, how do you be that generic with music and still end up being jarring? <laughs> it, it, well, it's just like the way, like, there's some like weird, like, synth stuff going on, and it turns into classical music halfway through. Like, there's some orchestration, but then there's like this weird, like, subpar. Like, they got like John Carpenter's stunt double to do the fog theme for the beginning. <laughs> That's what it reminded me, like, Mister Rogers' fog theme. It, it kind of sounded like Phantasm at times. Kind of, yeah, right? Yeah. It, it was kind of just jarring that aspect. If it, it just stayed one kind of orchestration or like synth all through it, 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 it just felt weird in that sense. Fair. Plus, I uh, wasn't a big fan that they killed a horse in this movie. <laughs> I was watching that and I was like, is that a real dead horse? I think that's a real dead horse. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put it past North Korea. They sure, North Korea have... doesn't give a shit. Yeah, they don't have an ASPCA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Don, what did you not like about this flick? Um, give me a second, because you guys mentioned the sound. That was mine. Um, I think that was cause... everyone's, to be fair. Uh, no, um, I had the same thing with the score, because it's just really odd. There's like this odd juxtaposition where it looks like a 60s film, but yet it's got like an 80s soundtrack. So it, it, to me, I wouldn't have minded it if they had actually redubbed the score with an actual orchestra. Because mm -hmm. I actually I like the beat of the music, but if it's recorded on an actual with actual instruments, I probably would have liked it a little more and it fit in with the movie a little better. Um, hold on. Uh, since you guys mentioned that... Um, I'm going to say I'm not a huge fan of the villains in this. Uh, I don't think that the two main, the emperor and the main general, I don't think they're really all that, like, noteworthy. Um, they're just like, you know, the regular old cackling madmen villains who just, you know, seem to throw trap after trap after trap with no real, like, thought behind anything. So, I mean, yeah, I can... They're... 
I was, they're like bad versions of like 36 Chambers villains. Yeah, but I'm saying is that, you know, there's like no real distinct personality to them. There's like no real... I mean, all they do is they just stand there laughing at the new invention that's supposed to trap them. And then, you know, they look shocked when it fails. And it's like none of the planets <laughs> ever really seem to like have any thought or throughput behind them. Like, how is it supposed to work? It's just, you know, let's just throw something at it and... I mean, when mili- when you look at the military plans in, like, a Godzilla movie, there's actual thought behind it. There's, you know, like, a- a- at least a sense that there's, like, actual military strategy put into it and using their machinery to the best of its ability. Do you mean empty- digging a hole isn't military strategy? <laughs> Didn't they do that in Godzilla movies, too, though? Dig holes? Well, yeah, but if you look at what they did in those movies, they lined it with something. They lined poison gas, or they put dynamite into there. You gotta remember, this is a period piece, too, buddy. Oh, yeah, yeah let's talk about this that... period piece that has fucking missiles. Yeah. No, they, they, they have that. There's actual proof of that. Um, that's, not an, that's not an anachronism. Um, there's actual... Um, they, just, they discuss this on, on Mythbusters. Um, there's... Korean era um, military strategies from like the 12th or 13th century that are very similar to what they depict in the film. That's not an anachronism. That's actual truth. That's I just remember seeing the missiles and I'm like I haven't seen one gun and these, these motherfuckers got missiles. But the, and, and I'm like what the fuck is this? But then their big like reveal of their most powerful weapon is a cannon. Yeah. And I'm just like. Yeah, bro. We we yeah. Lion gun and general gun. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, oh, cannons. Okay, so we're gonna shoot giant cannonballs into a monster made out of burnt rice. This is wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm kind of at, at dawn with this. Um, much like him, y'all said the music and sound design. Much like him. Uh, the 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 military it is just everything in this movie is just really generic like none of the characters really stand out they all kind of follow generic tropes everything about this movie is just very very generic i would like to see this movie remade because i think there there's potential in it um we could at least make it look better than reptilian you know what i'm saying well um well funny sir you mentioned that um the last project that the director did before he died was a remake of polgasari it's called galgamesh oh shit i gotta watch that thank you Don. Um, um yeah no um like what venom said earlier it's actually a kitty film and oh. a lot of the political overtones are, are drowned out and Never mind. I don't want to watch. I don't want to watch this movie. Does it have Barney? Does he, does Pogosari look like Barney? I haven't seen it, but I I know of its existence. The it, it it's the last movie the director filmed before he died. Um, I think it's called Galgamesh or Gilgamesh or. This sounds like, like an that. underwater so, kaiju commentary episode. <laughs> it might be first time watch for all of us. We'll do a commentary. Um, yeah, um, but like I said, uh, <laughs> funny you mentioned that because there is one by the same director, and uh, it's it's geared more towards kids. I know that, but 
Uh, other than that, uh, I don't know much. I mean, I'm not even sure of the pronunciation and spelling, so no, well, that's, that's how much I know of it. I gotta talk about my yeah. favorite scene in this movie, because uh, this movie is actually kind of brutal. Uh, at one point, they're hanging people, and, like, they don't have them, like, standing on stools or anything like that. They have, that sta- they have them standing on the backs of other people that are about to get hanged. Yeah. Like, they're just stand like, the bandits are getting hung, and they're standing on the backs of other bandits. And it's just like, oh, Jesus, that is fucking brutal. Like, I, I really, really dug that. Like, I would almost really like to see a movie remade about this story without a giant monster. It, it, I think it would actually be pretty cool, because I like those Taala movies. Uh, let's talk about Polgasari, the actual monster. It starts off as this cute little thing, um, and whenever he eats steel or iron... Uh, he kind of puts any kind of metal in his mouth, but when he eats that kind of shit, he gets bigger. His problem is, is he never finishes a goddamn meal. <laughs> he, he takes bites out of stuff and then just goes, oh, what's it? It's like that uh, stupid scene in Family Guy with like James Wynn. They're like, oh, piece of candy. Oh, piece of candy. Oh, piece of candy. That's what he does. Oh, piece of steel. Oh, piece of iron. Oh, fucking fork. Iron. Well, doesn't he actually... The first, thing, the first thing he does is he eats the knitting needle and he pulls the string out. So I think that's like the only one he actually does eat. No, no, no. But yeah, if no. you watch that, because I rewound it and watched it, he actually eats half of it, pulls the string out, and drops the other half. Eats half of it. I thought he ate the whole thing. Nope. You act. I looked. He dropped half of it out of his other hand. Hmm. Yeah, because he bit it in half. Yep. He bites everything in half, or he just bites a chunk out of it, and then he moves on. Yeah. He doesn't know how to finish a fucking meal. He's made out of rice. What do you expect? Yeah, fucking burnt rice. I do really like that scene where they trap him in a cage and set him on fire. He does yeah. He does actually eat a majority of that knitting needle. I see what you're saying, Jerry, because he does throw down two smaller pieces from both of his hands, but they're small pieces, so it looks like he does eat, like, the majority of the middle of the needle. So, he's like me. He doesn't eat the crust on the pizza. Exactly, yep. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, Polisar, I think, actually looks pretty fucking good. I think uh, some of the close-up shots of his face and where his face is moving and his eyes are moving actually look really good. Mm -hmm. Uh, The suit actually looks... Pretty good. I don't like the I don't like the small. Su- I don't like the suit when he's like still growing when he's like a little boy. I, yeah. I like little tiny Pogosari when he's sleeping in the bed. Though I was like, oh, that reminds me of Bad Milo. Oh. <laughs> I I want a Pogosari toy. Do they make them? Oh, they better. Does North Korea allow that? Will they hunt you down? <laughs> Are we gonna be caught on the blacklist if we buy one? Yeah. I remember yeah. when I first saw this movie, uh, my buddy had a bootleg DVD, and it was, and it was, he was like, yeah, it's North Korea, but like, it was, it was dubbed in Japanese, but had English subtitles. Okay. Oh, it was just very strange. I'm not sure if the one that I watched today, because it doesn't sound Korean to me, it still sounds like it's that Japanese dub. It kind of sounds Japanese to me too, as well, at times. Um. Mm. It's hard to tell sometimes, but uh, 
Either way, so uh, Venom, what did you think of the Polgasari suit? I like the suit both when he was very small and when he was very big. But when he was human size, when he was like the same size as all the people around him, I thought it looked kind of hokey. It looked like a Halloween costume. Like there was no real threat to him. He looked like a guy in a costume. So I don't know if I don't know if having a human size kaiju <laughs> is very advantageous to the fear factor. But ultimately, like I said, I liked his very young stage and his very large stage, whereas the human stage left a little to be desired. Yeah, and uh, bonus uh, little commentary because I don't know, remember us bringing it up. The uh, little stage was actually by the same actor that played Minya in the '60s films. Nice. He got kidnapped, also. Yep. Yeah, they kidnapped Holy Minya. Shit. Yeah, they kidnapped uh, March on the Dwarf. Oh. Yeah, it's this, the <laughs> same guy that was Minya in the '60s is the one that does the uh, small the scenes with the human size. Holy shit. God do, damn, we know, North Korea. do we know when this movie was actually shot? Was it shot in 85 or 84? Or it had it? to be because uh, it, it, it was shot after Return of Godzilla. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. So yeah, it had to be shot in 85. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, because that's specifically why they brought the crew in was because of the effects work done in that movie. Mm-hmm. That's why Satsuma's there. That's why the special effects are by Nakano. Um, I, it's specifically because 85's premiere, so it's either very late 84 into 85 or very early 85. Yeah, they don't have unions. They probably made that movie in seven days. Uh, I know Satsumu actually wrote a book about his experience on this, but it's never been translated into English. Oh, God damn it! Yeah. Someone needs to work yeah, I, on that. I, I looked into that. Um, I think August actually brought it up about doing that, but I don't know if that was ever something he finished or went through on or something. But I, I do remember him talking about wanting to do like all of the unreleasable biography, biographies and like all the you know the novels and like uh, memoirs from all of the suit actors and stuff. But I, wonder, I don't know. I, I wonder yeah. if I like got those books and just used like the Google Translate on my phone. How well it would do? Would it do it enough that I could read it and like with context clues be able to figure out like anything like that's grammarly that doesn't that doesn't translate into like English style grammar? I should. I've got Japanese Godzilla books. I should try that. Give it a try and see if he Yeah, could. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You'd find out nothing. I waste 10 minutes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Don, what did you think about the Polagosari suit? Uh, it's one of my favorite creations. Um, I love the horns. I love the, mo- the mouth. Um, the only thing that I do have a small little issue with is I do... I, do, I don't like that crest not the crest but like the the way the thing that he has overneath his shoulders i i think it looks a little bulky it looks a little restrictive and it just doesn't look natural the football fucking shoulder pads yeah like the shoulder pads or whatever you called um i I, they just look a little weird and they just they don't look natural to him it just doesn't look like a natural design compared to the rest of them but 
That's um, fair. I do like the dragon. I do like the dragon face. I love the bull horns. Um, the grabby little claws that he has. I think they're. It's a serviceable costume, and it's a lot better than you know what you would expect from that kind of this kind of a film. You know, it's not a Godzilla level quality, but it's it's a serviceable it's a serviceable look. Yeah, I got to Quentin Quentin Tarantino. This I really liked his feet. I did too. <laughs> like I dug his feet, Derek. What else did you like about the suit? What how, what are your feelings on the suit? I enjoy, it worked pretty good for some most of the scenes it was in. Like my favorite scene of it's like after he was burned in the cage and he pops back up and like this beam of red goes over his face and he's just like, I'm pissed now. I'm going to kill all of you. <laughs> Which that's my favorite scene of the suit. Uh, I kind of agree. Like the middle suit where he's a uh, human size is kind of a little bit wonky at times, but it's whatever, you know? And I like little mini guy because sleeping in bed, like, Oh, I was like, Oh, so yeah, cute. I so yeah, I liked Pogasaur. I I thought the movie was was okay. Like, um, yeah, the audio is pretty bad. Like, and it was a pretty generic movie in general. But I didn't hate my time with it. it yeah, it's pretty. If you we like, we've seen this with Jamajin already. It's pretty much the same, or like the Golem, like Venom said. It's kind of has that same aspect to both those movies, and you're like. You kind of want to see something a little bit different from this time period, especially after 80, Godzilla '84. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So it and like there are some cool scenes when they try to destroy him with fire. They they drop him in a hole and dump rocks on him, and then chick comes and like slashes her arm open to bring him back to life, which. Wow, how has an emo band not made a song about a, a girl slashing her arms open to bring a monster out of a rock pit? <laughs> Missing opportunities, people. Uh, eventually, once they win and destroy the, the king, uh, Pogasari, you know, continues to literally eat everything that's made out of metal, so they don't have tools, they don't have cooking stuff. And the, the main chick ends up hiding in a bell and getting... Eat yeah, with it. sorry to eat it, which then turns him to stone or something. I actually like, really like that dissolving scene where he dissolves. <laughs> yeah, that was actually pretty dope. Yeah. Um. So yeah, does anyone else have anything they want to say about Pogasari? Uh, you know, with everything political aside, uh, with everything in the backstory, if you put that aside, I think, uh. A few people will still enjoy this movie, especially if you like classic, like Shaw Brother epic type of movies. You know, it's it's kind of more in that stance of that type of story. Don't expect like a whole lot of like kaiju action throughout it, but I think there there might be some enjoyment. But just going, it is a little bit lower quality budget than say if something that would come out in '85. You know what I mean? If you go in with those things in your head you might enjoy it a little bit more than some of us i i think it was okay myself you know it's like jerry said it's a little bit generic and you know if you've seen diamond gin or the golem or something like that and you haven't seen it, you might enjoy it a little bit more but yeah it's a little it's okay it's not it gets a pass for me 
Yeah, me personally, all the background stuff, the story, the politics, all of that makes the movie better for me. Yeah. Because I watch it and I just think about, like, you know, these people have been kidnapped, they're being forced to do this by, by this fucking guy who, they're in a country where he literally has all the power. There's one person with more power than him. That and it's dead. his dad. Like he can do whatever the fuck he wants. Like just those extras are sitting there like, thank God Venom isn't the guy who's reviewing this and pointing out that I'm just swinging my sword at the air because King Jong Il would fucking hang me. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I will say there are positive elements to the movie. I forget who it was, but somebody mentioned the brutality of the movie. Oh, yeah, uh, me. I mean, that scene where they're torturing that elderly woman, I mean, that was fucking brutal. Oh, like, I, yeah. I've never seen anything like that in a kaiju movie where I was legit. I legitimately turned my head because I just didn't want to see them beating the shit out of this elderly woman. It just made no sense to me. I understand they were doing it to get information, but, I mean, what kind of piece of shit do you have to be to torture the elderly? A North Korean piece of shit? Uh, I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. With that, we are moving on to the Ultraman Report. We have episode... Is episode 22? Yeah. 22. Yep, episode 22. The Underground Destruction Work. Uh, Came out December 11th, 1966. Directed by Akio Jisoji. Which I just really liked that name, so I figured I'd say it. Um, all right. Uh, so basically, the Science Patrol Paris Division sends a woman uh, by the name of Anne. She shows up to bring. She's got a special mission. Um, but she's not telling anyone what her mission is. She's hanging out. She's got her sunglasses. She's cool and French and shit. Um, so they arrive at headquarters and, uh, she's like, Hey, I've got to bring Hayata to Paris, uh, for the space development rocket pilot. Uh, so they're like, cool, we're going to do that. Hayata agrees and he leaves with Anne. They watch him leave. Um, and then like, as soon as that they leave, all of a sudden, what is it? Shit. Everything goes starts going to shit. Yeah, it's crazy. satellites are fucking up. Waves are going crazy. It is raining cats and dogs. Uh, it's it's insane. Uh, so they're all running at this point, all trying to run around and figure out what's being what's going on. They head to Tokyo TV Center, um, where they meet up with a scientist who claims that the reason why there is no power or anything is possibly due to the science control themselves claiming that the HQ is giving off strong bursts of magnetism that is fucking up everything. So, they run back to headquarters to see if uh, that's what's going on. Searching the headquarters, they end up finding a device that is causing the magnetic interference, and they dismantle it. Um, And from there, they notice one of the components. uh, I'm going to try to... Germantant. Germantant? That sounds about right. Because yeah. uh, the dub doesn't exactly make it clear. Yeah, uh, this is... This is actually one of their worst dubs, I think. Because a lot of the technical stuff just sounds like gibberish, I think. Oh, yeah. the aud- I had that in my notes that the audio for yeah. this episode is really, really bad. I mean, 
we all know that everything past like episode five, th- this is audio from like VHS. Right, it's not yeah. high quality stuff, but this episode is yeah. really bad. Yeah, this is uh, this is easily the worst of the English dubs. Yeah, uh, and so this German ant, it's not a German ant. German ant, German tant, German tant. I'm gonna go with German tant. German taint. German tant. German taint. German ant. We don't know. Uh, it's found deep underground, and. Uh, so they're like, oh, well, this, you know, this could it also be found in space. Maybe this is in space. Um, but uh, Ito is kind of like, hey, Anne was in here. Could be Anne, guys. It's fucking Anne. Uh, Hiroshi's like, dude, no, it's not Anne. We saw her leave. You're, you're mistaken. So, but Ito ends up noticing uh, a woman on the street who looks just like Anne. But, of course, Arashi is like, dude, shut up. Uh, they later go into space to follow Arashi's idea that something in space, which we see them go into space, and that's it. We don't see what they do in space. Nothing. They just come right back, and as they're coming back, they happen to see uh, the woman, and again, in the middle of a field as they're coming down from space. <laughs> Let that sink in. Uh, so they get out and try to find her and question her, but she sees them as a loud roaring is heard, and the woman quickly flees the scene, uh, and they run down there, and they find Hayata's communicator on the ground. Dun-dun-dun-dun. They run back to HQ and, uh, try to contact the Paris HQ, only to learn that Anne looks nothing like the Anne they met. Close. No Actually, I- <laughs> like they look identical okay i don't know why they're acting like they don't look identical <laughs> it's uh, a lady with brownish hair That's yeah funny. like generic french lady okay is she um even french what <laughs> yeah is she even french uh wee oui, oui. <laughs> so uh now they're starting to believe Ido, and they're like, okay, we've got to go find this. So they all go to search to find and, uh, and Hiata. Hiata. So Ido searches the TV center, and he finds Anne, and, and, and you know, struggles a little bit to find out where Hiata is. But uh, during, during this little uh, wrestling match, Anne's sunglasses fall off to reveal... Uh, dun, dun, dun. The worst special of makeup effect in the history of the world. Cotton pads. Like, <laughs> and that's like being generous. It, that's they being do. Generous. It looks like uh, that thing that like my fiance has is like this round thing that she uses like to like put makeup on her face. It's like some round like puffy disc. It looks like they put that there and then covered it with band aids <laughs> or some kind of clay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. yeah. yeah. So bad. And seriously, and seriously, folks, we are not even close to doing justice to how atrocious no. this looks. It is the most hideously laughable reveal ever. It just completely takes everything out of what's going on, and it's supposed to be this big shocking moment. It is gut-bustingly hilarious for the wrong reasons. Yeah, like, they did not do anything to, like, make it look like the pad over the eyes is actually connected to the skin. 
Like, they didn't blend or mix or anything to, like, and to me, that seems like it would be very, very easy to do. Uh, they were like, no, that's, the, they just have big fucking scabby eyelids. They're too <laughs> I mean, heavy to open. Yeah, this special effect was so bad that I didn't real I didn't even realize at first that it was supposed to represent overgrown skin or, you know, I, I honestly thought they were legitimately wearing patches like the characters in the movie. I, I had no idea that was supposed to be like a mole like, type thing, like they've been underground so long. Their they, eyelids aren't thick enough to protect them from the actual sun because they've been underground and the glass sunglasses aren't enough. So they had to like fucking put band-aids on their eyes to help block uh, out the sun. You, you know That's what, what I, I did? Spoiler alert, you know what I did to save me from aneurysm after watching this episode? Masturbate? I don't know. I watched the mole people. A better <laughs> version of the story. Dope. I do love the mole people. Did you watch the Mystery Science Theater one, though? Uh, No, it's actually a special feature. I'm going to actually watch that after we're done. Yeah. That's what I'm talking it. about. Um, So... Uh, I, but I also had to talk about something about Ito in this TV station. He's walking around. He's got a gun with a long barrel. It's a long tube. And there's romantic music playing, and he is stroking it. This is my rifle. This is my gun. <laughs> yeah, this is not subtle at all. I don't know what's going on here. It's the, but it's, it's the spectrum. It makes I, him do that shit. Maybe, but he was straight up like fucking jacking off, uh, erotic massaging this gun he's like, to romantic music. He's like, uh, he's just jerking the gun off. Like they should have fucking listened to me to begin with, as usual. And, and I'm trying to figure out: is the music playing like music that's just playing in the TV station, or is this music that only us, the audience, hear, or is this music that is playing in his head? Uh, it's playing in his head yeah. and plus he's also picturing that time when Fuji bent over to pick up the pencil oh god yeah <laughs> uh, Fuji I'll give you a pearl necklace come home okay um hmm. so uh Anne gets away and a monster named Telazdon comes out and I have a toy of Telazdon so I'm a big fan uh he comes to the surface and he attacks Tokyo. But the science patrol, they're on their way. They're prepared and they start dropping bombs that just really make Telazon like dance a lot and doesn't really <laughs> hurt him, it seems. Um, so Anne ends up running away and arrives at an unknown location uh, where we find out Hayata's there. He's strapped to a table. Uh, he kind of wakes up. He's all delirious and shit. And uh, all the people around him dressed in suits have no eyes. They all have pads. You know what I call these scenes? I call these scenes the David Lynch scenes. Yes. <laughs> yes, it does seem like David Lynch like directed a really shitty episode of like The Outer Limits. Yeah. Um. So, uh, we find out that these people, these human-like people, are actually a race of underground people who have been beneath the surface since the glacial period, waiting for their time to take over the Earth by enslaving humanity because they need holes dug. They're going to trap themselves to Pogosari. 
and they also know of Hayata's Hayata's secret identity as Ultraman. They figured this out underground, hanging out with the Cetopians from God's Deliverance Megalon, and no one in the Science Patrol has figured this shit out yet. This mm. is this is an mm. angle that I thought was gonna cause like a lot of drama, but it kind of fizzled out. Like they didn't get to do anything with that information. So why even tell us that? The, I mean, I understand that you know they controlled you know Ultraman in the next scene coming up. I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but I honestly thought when they first revealed that they knew Hayato was Ultraman, I'm like, ooh! I literally sat up in my seat and started thinking, okay, this episode's gonna get good now, and then. It just fizzled out. They did nothing with it. It's too bad. Yeah, yeah, I was like, okay, this is getting somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This episode has such good setup with the mystery and, and, and the creepiness, and it shits oh, the bed completely. My, you're, you're taking the thing I like the most about this is that 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 was when we were done. I was actually going to mention that the the setup to this, the first half. Oh, it's one of my favorites, and mm-hmm. yeah. It's not necessarily my favorite episode, but this is one of my favorite intros into an episode. And yeah, yeah, you're kind of you're taking a little bit of my thunder there because I was gonna say that I'm a thunder taker. Da-na-na-na. I love that rest Um. Okay. Uh. So. Uh. Do 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 do. Where am I in my notes? Glacial period. That's what I was looking for. Um, so, they, uh, the underground people hook up, like, a nerve gas mask thing to hypnotize Hayata. It's the same thing my dentist uses before, uh, like, they oh, do my teeth. Well, I was gonna say no! I mean, it does have a bad side effect of your butt hurting, but it's not, I mean, it's just a side effect of the, of the gas. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, that was a bad joke. Uh, so... <laughs> no, worse than mine. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so they use the nerve gas hypnotized Hada into breaking his free will and allowing them to use Ultraman's mind and power as the as their weapon of destruction. With Hayata now under their control, he transforms into Ultraman! Unknown to the underground people, though, Ultraman and Hayata are two separate fucking people. So, Hayata's hypnotized... But Ultraman is not. He's like, yeah, bitch. bitch please. Uh, Has that been established before this episode that they're two yeah. separate? Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I must have missed it completely. Because remember I... that? Because remember that one episode where Ultra Hayato was passed out and Ultraman yeah, the was Bolton one. Yeah, yeah, the, the Bol- Bolton one. The Bolton okay. one. I must. Yeah. Have you don't remember when Michael Bolton performed a song to Ultraman, but uh, Hayato was like, "This is not okay." He's like, this is the tale of Ultraman. <laughs> da, 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 da. Uh, what is wrong with us tonight? Um, it's is it time? This a... episode, this is the it's... greatest lineup ever. <laughs> uh, so the intense light of the Ultraman transformation actually kills all the underground people in attendance. Uh, Ultraman is now a mass murderer, uh, committing genocide. Um, but you know, at least Anne dies. Uh, so Ultraman <laughs> goes back up top to the surface to see Telazdon. And with that, we move on to the Ultraman Fight Breakdown by Don. Uh, 
All right. Emerging from the underground bunker, Ultraman flies in and lands on Telestan, knocking both to the ground. Attempting to grapple for control, the two begin rolling on the ground, trying to gain the upper hand, where Ultraman eventually monkey flips Telestan head over heels into a nearby building and gets to his feet. Telestan does the same and charges at Ultraman, who flips out of the way and tries to do the same to Telestan, who retaliates with a vicious punch and a series of clubs to knock Ultraman off balance. Telestan tries to mount Ultraman on the ground and attempts to choke him while slamming his weight on Ultraman's body. But Ultraman lifts the knees and hits Telestan in the midsection coming down, eventually allowing him to get out from under the creature and get back to his feet. Telestan tries another charge, but is neck tossed away, only to get right back up and get kicked back to the ground. Ultraman moves in for a slew of close-quarter punches and clubbing chops to the back and neck, which stagger Telestan, allowing Ultraman to pick it up by the tail and slam it to the ground. A weary Telestan struggles back to his feet, allowing Ultraman to come in and neck snap it to the ground once again. And when the creature tries to rise once again, Ultraman grabs the creature, lifts it over his head, and slams it headfirst to the ground, where it struggles for a few seconds before expiring and allowing Ultraman to stand tall in victory. You know, I got a question. What do they do with all the dead monster bodies? The poor eat like kings. Fair. Uh, okay, so uh, after that, Hayato returns to the Science Patrol HQ to reassure all of them of his safety. He also introduces them to the real Anne, who has actual eyeballs. Fun fact. <laughs> she does. Uh, so she was kidnapped by the imposter from the underground and held prisoner. Uh, so with that, they go upon their real mission, as they were supposed to do before. They bring Hayata to with her to Paris... To have him be their space development rocket pilot. The fucking end. Um, so, with that, uh, Don, I already stole your thunder, but we'll, we'll bring it back to you. Act like I didn't say it. Don, what did okay. you love about this episode? I actually like the scenes with Telestan. Um, it's there's not a lot of like really ingenious stuff to do that they do with them, but I just I, I like the mini rampage. I like the nighttime setting. It just looks like a really, it just looks make it look unique. And one of my favorite shots in the film is that overhead shot of the bombs dropping out of the bunker, just exploding around him. You know, it's not necessarily like the kind of like tricky camera work that you would see in these kinds of films. It's just, you know, straight on explosions, smoke going off and like the close up of the feet smashing through a building or highway or whatever. You know, we get that stuff, but it's just like you would expect that would be the entirety of the rampage. And, you know, they throw in that fun little overhead shot and I kind of liked it. So Dope. All right. uh, Derek, what did you like about this episode? Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Okay, uh, I, I, Derek, how do you feel about this episode? Uh, 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 this is probably my least favorite episode so far. <laughs> it's just there's so much potential, and it just fucking shits the bed halfway through it. And you know, I kind of like the look of the mole people without the the glasses on it because it reminds me of one of my favorite sci-fi movies of all time not of this earth i kind of like that aspect of it but then once they take their glasses off it fucking ruins the whole thing and it's just laughable i 
there's just some good parts to it. Don't get me wrong. There's some, I kind of actually do like the David Lynchians kind of scenes in the movie uh, or the episode per se, but I wish they, it just feels like it's a cop out at the end and it just shits the bed because. Yep. All right. Uh, Venom, how did you feel about this episode? Honestly, I'm right there with Derek. Uh, this this episode had some great setup between uh, the under the underground dwellers and you know the fact that they knew Hayata's secret and even you know some of the stuff they were talking about with the science patrol and the French division early on. I thought all of that was really interesting, but then the second half of the episode just abandons everything. It abandons the the whole doppelganger uh, angle. It, it, it abandons the fact that they know who Hayata is. I mean, if one of them would have survived, almost like setting up a sequel episode, I think I might have liked it a little bit better. But yeah, this episode is basically the episode of uh, unrealized potential. It you know first half was great second half though not bad just didn't pay off everything that was set up in the first episode not a terrible episode I liked the kaiju I thought Teladon looked great uh, I thought he you know as far as his mannerisms and everything else uh, I thought the fight was good um, like I said it was just mainly the story of this episode just they abandoned too many plot points for me to be able to say that this is a great episode but. Um, I'm not going to say it's a bad one. I know Derek said it's probably one of his least favorites. I don't think it's my least favorite necessarily of the first 22, but it's definitely not a favorite. It's not even an average for me. It's definitely going to be in the low end of the spectrum uh, for the first half of the series. So Yeah, and don't get me wrong. I do like the Teledon stuff too. Uh, that's yeah, actually yeah, yeah. one of the things I like about the episode. Mm-hmm. It's just like Venom said, the story itself was a little bit too jarring and wonky for me it's it's like the first half i've said it before on other shows but the first half of the episode wrote a check that the second half of the episode couldn't cash and that's unfortunate do you think this would have been this is because it's a 20 minute episode if this was given me if this was like a two-parter or a feature yes that's what i was saying that if they if they would have had some kind of cliffhanger ending where maybe the fake Anne survived or something and we see her escape almost even if we never got a second episode just to show us that the potential for these people to come back is there i might have enjoyed it more well no no what i'm saying is that it this is spread out over two episodes where the end of episode one there's i mean you know i don't know how you would get away with it there was no ultraman at all episode one ends at the tv station when Anne pulls the sunglasses off and there's the reveal that's the end of episode one Episode two then is the race to figure out what's going on and how, and then you know you feature Ultraman in that section of the movie, and the first one you don't have him at all. Yeah, I would. Like, I, yeah, I think that would work. I'm fine with that because yep. it would build a little more storyline with the mold, the mole people, as I would call them. <laughs> no, I mean that's what I mean. They, they set up such a great antagonist with these, you know, whatever mole people, doppelgangers, whatever you want to go with, and it, they just seem to fail just as easily as every other human antagonist on Ultraman. And that's disappointing because, like I said, for the mere fact that they could monitor activities up top to the point where they know Hayata is Ultraman, it just seemed like there could have been just an ultra cool storyline, you know, added to that, but, or, or at the very least expanded upon. And like I said, they just 
kind of let it they let it die with Teladon. When Teladon died, the rest of the story died too, and that's too bad. Yeah, this is probably the most. Uh, we all have an episode where we we're like this in our past. Mm-hmm. I, I know Jerry's was the Antlar episode, Venom's was uh, the Bolton episode, I believe. And you no, know, no, I, it, I love Bolton. Um, no, uh, no, Bolton's the little not not Bolton. Bolton, the one that Don reviewed, and you know, he's like that little circle thing with the little. Spikes oh right, no, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah. So yeah, it, mine, it happens. Yeah, I mean, mine was the Zerub one, so. Yeah, exactly. And we that, all have our yeah, and the thing is, is that, you know, again, there is one thing that I do want to bring up, and this is one of the big things that I have, is to me, it's just really unlikely that Arashi is going to forgo the theory that Ido puts out about Anne being the cause mm-hmm. when he's got one of the most impeccably sound and logical arguments She's the only outside interfere. She's the only outsider to come in and has recently entered the building. And then after she leaves, everything goes apeshit. Yeah. Yeah. They and, never give our boy Ito the credit he deserves. Right. He be cracking the these is, cases. Right. And the thing is, is Arashi's theory makes no sense. You know, he, he goes to the doctor and says, isn't it true that this comes, that this could come from space? And he says, yeah, it could. And it says, okay, then to space it is. And <laughs> yeah, it, you know, that goes nowhere. And then it's coming back from, it's coming back from there where they spot and in the middle of the field. So it's just one of those, it just feels like a really weird workaround where this late into the episode, you've been dealing with these things for like 21, 22 weeks now. Arashi, you're going to disregard his theory that has sound logic and thought put into it and is that he actually has a valid point Ooh. you're gonna forego that just for your own stupid theory uh, that that has no thought to it let's just make be honest Hiroshi's more of a bronze than brains type of dude to begin with well Hiroshi had one good point to go against Ito saying where he was just like we saw them fly away and to give him credit, that's the only, the only time that I think that works is when he spots her in the car. Mm-hmm. When he, they're in the car and he spots her on the side of the road, and then they, you know, they keep driving. I'll give Hiroshi credit there because that's the only time that he says, "Well, we saw them fly off." That's the only time his point makes sense. Yeah. And every other time after that, I don't think his his theories make any sense at all. Because his is the ones that actually puts them behind schedule. If they would have followed Ito from the beginning, they wouldn't have been. They would have cracked him a lot earlier. I. Yeah, one hundred percent. Um. So as for me, this episode definitely could have been way better. I really like the two-parter idea that Don had. Um, I was gonna say something similar. Like I really would have liked to seen a more fleshed-out version of this story. Um, and even though it kind of falls apart at the end of it, I still really like this episode. I really like, uh, Tell is Dawn. I really like, uh, the underground people. I like the story and everything. I really wish it would have turned out better. Um, but sometimes it seems like they just drop the story so, so they can be like Ultraman fight and they drop the story. Um, uh, and this is an episode that falls under that category. This is not the first time we've seen them do it. But uh, this is probably the time that pisses me off the most because mm-hmm. it was a really good story. Um, I also want to bring out uh, uh, 
Telazdan is pretty famous. He has a cameo in Terror of Mechagodzilla as one of Dr. Mifune's uh, drawings. Pretty good. Uh, his name comes from the uh, French word for underground. Pretty oh. dope. Uh, he has actually appeared in some other shows like Fighty, Fight Mighty Jack and uh, Red Man. He's modeled after a earthworm and apparently in a Rebirth of Mothra picture book explaining the origins of monsters such as Desigadora, Dagara. Uh, it is shown that like Dagara, the monsters Baragon and Telazdon to be present before the sinking of Rebirth of Mothra 2's Nile Kanai. Uh-huh. Uh, and Telazdon shows up a lot in the Ultraman series. He he actually has, like, many different versions. One of those versions kills Pigman. So, just so y'all know. <laughs> He's a jerk. Wow, is someone racing? Holy shit. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the, somebody went by my house, sorry. God damn, they, they fucking loud well, as fuck. That was another, like, a legitimate, like, cry of despair I thought. <laughs> It's like, it almost could have been like a, it almost sounded like a, like a legitimate, like, aww. Aww. <laughs> it sounded like a verse. Oh. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so this, uh, this episode, huge missed opportunity, but what can you do? I still really liked it. I think, uh, in general, really, really fun episode, at least for the first half of it. Maybe we'll have to rewrite the second half. Um, and that was episode 22 and Polgasari. This was a good episode. It's been a while. Sorry, guys. Uh, shit's been going on. The world's dying. You have better things to worry about than us. But we're back to give you our visions for Monsterlands and entertainment. So before we get out of here, we will kind of go around and see what everyone's been doing, uh, in their creative world so that you can listen to them. Let's start with Don. What have you been doing, Don? Uh, okay, so um, I've been busy as the uh, unofficial third co-host of uh, Fresh Cuts. Um, I've done uh, five out of the last six episodes with them, or Damn. something like that. Yeah. Like I said, unofficial third co-host. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we've done Monstrum, Detention, Scare Package, Yummy, and... Warning, do not play. Warning, do not play. Yeah, I knew there was another one. Um, and uh, once again, I will be with them on the uh, new episode that should be released right around the time this comes out, uh, which will be Metamorphosis, which is yet to record, but um, I'll see you tomorrow night, Venom. Oh, yeah. Um, I have uh, a couple episodes of uh, Bay of Blood released. Um, one of them is, uh, the last episode that I was on that was, I was a guest co-host before I became the official third host of the show, which was a, uh, discussion on the two, uh, Chrome Skull movies, uh, Laid to Rest and Chrome Skull 2. And then, um, I think the next episode to be released is a commentary on Hellraiser where I became the co-host before the show started. So that was the first episode where i'm the co-host on the show which should be releasing soon and i'm more than thrilled to announce that i'm doing a guest spot on another show called week in horror it's uh, one of the shows that i do for my daily write-ups and i'm friends with one of the guys on there um it 
will probably be recorded next week. The time this is the time this episode is recorded. My guest spot on there will be recorded. Um, uh, so uh, for those that aren't um, aware, Weekend Horror is basically just a look at the films that were released that calendar week. So, for example, say you know sat you know like say a Saturday ends on July sixth. So what they do is they look back throughout history and they look at the films that were released between January third between June thirtieth and January and July sixth. And they it's not like a free form review, it's just like a general discussion show. But it's like looking back at okay, say this film was released, you know, July third like, you know, July second, nineteen eighty two. And then they'll be like, okay, well, let's look at this film. It was released July 5th, 1989. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the the general way that the they work around the, you know, that like that's like the, the parameters of the show. And, and it's really fun. I'm a huge fan of them. And they've asked me to do a guest spot for, I think it's the week of the 21st. So we're going to record it the week before. So it's released the 21st. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Uh, Dope. I'm a huge fan of the show. So. Dope. All right, Derek, what about you? Okay. That's uh, where to begin. Cinema Attack just recorded last night our summer special, and we did the Creature from the Black Lagoon trilogy. Super fun time recording that, and we had a special guest with us. Carly joined us for those. Uh, first time watch for the two sequels for her. She's seen the original before. She wanted to see the sequels. I think she did the original with us on Kill the Cast. I can't remember if she did that one with us or not. I know she did, like, two Universal. I think she did Wolfman and Invisible Man with you. Yeah, I think I, she did those two. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that, that was a fun time. Uh and then me and her are going to be coming back to record our next episode of Celluloid Dissections later in the week when we're going to be talking about loss in translation. That should be out probably the next the week after. Uh, then uh, they're here. Uh, I'm not sure when we're going to we got to set up a date. It's just times are hectic for both me and Lacey for recording right now. Our days ain't matching up, but eh, it happens. So we'll, we'll figure it out as it goes along, but you know, sooner the better. Uh, no more room in hell. We have an episode out of that right now that Mr. Venom hosted and did unappreciated anthologies where we talked about, uh, what did we talk about? Uh, the house that drink blood and also, uh, from a whisper to a scream. That episode is pretty awesome. Good stuff there. And, uh, you know, underwater kaiju from outer space, where we give you those visions from Monsterland. That's about it for me. You know, oh, plus, uh, I did also record. Uh, it's not out yet. It should be out in a few weeks, maybe, or uh, a guest spot on Gangs of Hollywood, uh, where uh, we covered uh, New World, the South Korean crime film. Nice. <laughs> All right, Venom, your turn. All right, well, I won't be as long today since Derek took care of No More Room in Hell and Don already took care of Fresh Cuts for me. 
Um, so the other two shows I can talk about right now are It's Not Horror Okay, which is the movie commentary show that I do with a couple of folks from NFW and the Friday Nightmares podcast. On the last episode, we did Deathstalker 2 after we did the original probably like two months ago. And then on the next episode, we're gonna we're actually gonna walk uh, take a little time away from the kind of schlocky movies. And this week's pick was actually mine, and I decided to go with an early John Woo film. So we're gonna be looking at 1986's A Better Tomorrow on the next episode. That won't be for another couple of weeks, so you got some time for that. Deathstalker 2 hasn't even been released yet. I believe that releases as you're listening to this episode. Uh, that one should be out. And then on In the Mic of Madness with Rebecca Reinhart and Brad Thornton, we are in the middle of our Frank Henenlotter retrospective. We've already done Frankenhooker and Bad Biology, uh, which is the latest episode available now, is our Bad Biology episode. And then on the next episode, uh, we're going to be looking at brain damage before uh, the ultimate episode of this, or the final episode of the retrospective, where we look at the entire basket case trilogy that'll be sometime next month and after we're done with hen and lauder we will be doing another film retrospective a film franchise retrospective which we have not decided on um we were originally planning on doing halloween where we were going to time the episode so that the final episode of our halloween retrospective would be released the week that Halloween Kills comes out. Unfortunately, we all got the news this week that Halloween Kills and Candyman and a few other films' release dates have been postponed. So we're not 100% sure what we're going to do on In the Mic of Madness after Hen and Lauder is done, but it'll be another retrospective, so look for that. Uh, you, you know what would be funny? <laughs> I was just thinking... Uh, of, you know it would be a crazy retrospective to do, and it would be like like years until you finish it, the whole filmography of Jess Frank. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, we're, we're trying to stay away from prolific directors because we don't want to do the same guy for like six months. But yeah, that would be an epic retrospective. That would be like a three-year retrospective because he has like 4,000 films. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to up it. We're going to do Franco versus Nashi. <laughs> I like it. At least we're talking Spanish films, so I'm down. Uh, yeah. yeah. I love, I love some Nashi. I, I love me some Jess Franco too, man. The Diabolical Dodger Z, man. That movie's awesome. Did you ever see it? No. Uh, I think Jerry uh, would actually like his black and white films. Probably. I love black and yeah, white films. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know if he's gonna appreciate the '70s era. Um, I know. He, I know for a fact he's gonna absolutely dig the Soldad Miranda stuff. Yeah. For real. Yeah. I need to ed- educate myself on some Franco. Yeah, the only sure. thing you have to remember is that before he met Lena Romay, he was actually a he was actually a competent director. That's what make allowed him to make as many films as he did. And don't get me wrong, I like Lena Romay a lot for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. but I don't think any of the films that he did with her even come close to the stuff he did with Miranda. I think that to me, the films he did with her are just absolutely like masterpieces. I guess. Yeah, All right, well, a, yeah, we'll talk here about more about. Yeah, that. this ain't this ain't a horror podcast. Get out of here, uh, Venom. You got any more? Uh, that's it for me, buddy. Okay, as for me, um, I've got two guest spots out. I did 
The Horror Returns, uh, we did a South Korean show where we covered, uh, I got to bring three South Korean horror movies, so we did uh, Tale of Two Sisters, Old Boy, and I Saw the Devil. Nice. Fantastic episode, go check that out. Um, I also did a guest commentary with Bay of Blood on Jaws 3. Uh, apparently we will be doing a Jaws of Revenge commentary. So, cause they hit me up last night and was like, do you want to do it? And I'm like, oh, I'm with family. And they're like, all right, we'll do something different and save Jaws of Revenge for you. And I was like, dope. So Jaws of Revenge commentary at some point for Bay of Blood. Um, and then the only thing I've done, cause I, I, I'd taken a small break from podcasting as I, you know, I started a new job and, and, uh, the world sucked. And uh, I was actually supposed to record Kill the Cast last weekend, but Jay had to bow out at the last minute, so we waited. But you people will get your Frankenstein episode. It's coming. We're going to record that, I guess, next weekend. Nice. Uh, but I did do an interview with film historian Lee Gambin, which was a lot of fun. He knows more about eco-horror than anyone I've ever fucking met. Uh, dude is a wealth of knowledge, so go check out that interview. It does have some audio issues. I spent a week trying to fix it, but... At last, I couldn't do it, but apparently it's not too bad. So, go enjoy that, and that's it for me. Uh, next episode, we'll be back in the world of Kaiju. Uh, well, obviously, we'll be back in the world of Kaiju. We'll be in the back of the. We'll be back in the world of Godzilla. Is what I meant to say. So, we'll we'll be covering something from Godzilla. I don't know what yet. We'll find out, but. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you to these wonderful gentlemen for uh, watching Polgasari. <laughs> You're welcome, Venom. Um, and we will see you next time as we bring you our visions from Monsterland. Goodbye. Later. Adios. If you enjoyed this show, then make sure you check out the other great shows on the Legion Podcast Network, like Cinema PsyOps, Cinema Beef, Devour the Podcast, Duncan and Bo Come Correct, Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast, Friday the 13th, Get Slayed, The Hell Ming Power Hour, Hello, This is the Doom Show, Hero Hero Ghost Show, Kill the Cast, Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space, Jerry Hates Action, Legion After Dark, Mental Health, Obsessive Cinema, Discourse, Pick Six Movies, The Podcast by the Cemetery, The Podcast on Haunted Hill, The Psycho-Semantic Podcast, Rick Radio, House of Wax, Dude Looks Like the 80s, Rabbit and Red Radio, The Shadecast, Short Bus Cinema, Two Drink Minimum Commentaries, The VD Clinic, Who Will Survive Horror Podcast, and Which Versus the Doomsday Clock. With such a widespread of shows, there is guaranteed to be a niche for you to fall in love with. Horror, politics, movies, books, sex, music, commentaries, health, video games, kaiju, action, news, comedy, and opinions that would most likely get you killed in some parts of the world. We are proud to bring you some of the best podcasting in the world. Check us out at www.legionpodcast.com, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and any other dark corner of the internet where podcasts can be found.